Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today we welcome back a friend of the podcast, Dr. Ian Rossborough. Last time we talked about the basics of seeing acute patients. This time we're going to talk about advanced concepts in managing the acute patient. These advanced concepts may be a bit difficult to grasp at first if you don't have much experience managing these types of patients. If that's the case, don't worry about it. This may be your first exposure to some of these concepts, but that will help you to begin formulating an idea of where you need to go. We all have to start somewhere, and that's usually at the beginning. But today, let's look down the road a little further and see how far we can see. So without any further ado, Dr. Ian Rossborough. Thanks, Hello, Dr. David. Ian. Welcome back for here. round two. <laughs> um, so let's talk more about the uh, the acute case, and we're going to go a little more advanced this time. So let's start with an advanced situation like a spondylolisthesis, because we didn't talk about that at all last time. And um, I didn't ever realize how common they were until I went and practiced and started shooting x-rays on everybody and quickly discovered that there was a tremendous number of people who had spondies, and a lot of them were even yeah. asymptomatic, but they had them. And so it was one of those things that you got to know how to work around it. You got to know when yeah, somebody's well, got it. Uh, so let's talk about that a little bit. Once, once somebody discovers spondylolisthesis as an actual um, event, they can get a little bit addicted to ch- to adjusting them, if you know what I mean. Like it's a bit like if you look at a base posterior, the first time a, a chiropractor recognizes that there's a parallel disc, um, which is different to the rest of the uniform discs in the lumbar spine, they get on that sacrum and they get a marvelous result it's you know it's almost euphoric you know i can't wait to get another one of those that was amazing you know there is but spondylos they can be like that like they can get a people addicted to doing the wrong thing the you know, one thing i'd love people to realize is that spondylos are usually very stable you can get a spondylo that's um you know you can get one where the the back of the sacrum in fact, the entire sacrum is almost sitting posterior to the back of the L5 body. Like, you know, you get these spondylos that it, look like it, it looks like it shouldn't be physiologically possible for the person to be walking around and on the film. And, you know, when you look at it, you think, well, gee, what's the spinal cord doing? What's the, what's the phylum terminale doing? Like, how are those nerves getting to where they've got to go? How does this person even exist? But even in that situation the spondylo can be very stable and if it's unless the person's acute and you know the person's got like very acute low back pain and they've got ridiculous symptoms shooting down their leg it's more than likely not the sacrum that's going to be the problem and and that this is where it's really important for a gonstead practitioner or chiropractor in general but definitely a gonstead practitioner to really look at their patient and and assess them, find the subluxation on the patient and not on the films. So getting back to the ileum situation, a lot of people with spondylolisthesis that have like what I would call like an ache down the leg or a, like a mild sciatic down the leg or um, like, a, like some sort of sensation change, like a paresthesia or something like that that moves down the leg, you, um, you're often very often looking at an ileum problem 
or even a rotated sacrum, even though it's a spondylolisthesis, you can still have something that's not a base posterior. So that's really important to know that. And on top of that, many, many, many times you've got a sacral segment issue, which is separate to a base posterior. And so it's really important, I think, that when chiropractors look at a lateral film and they see this very obvious spondylo, that they don't just climb up on the sacrum and start to try and adjust it below the L5 disc because it's very often not the problem. And especially when L5 is tipped right back and the correct line of drive on that one is to take the sacrum superior to inferior up to the plane line of the disc and then to set through the plane line of the disc. If, if that's what the appearance is on the film and the person's decided based on what they're seeing there that they're going to set the sacrum and they have to follow that plane line of the disc or that line of correction and they're actually looking at a sacral segment issue separate to L5 or a rotated sacrum, which is a subluxation at the sacroiliac joint, or an ilium problem, which clearly is a subluxation at the SI joint, um, that person's going to get really bad really quickly. And Yeah. Yeah, I have a spondylolisthesis, and so when I, when I was in school, people would do that. They would try to set yeah. the sacrum underneath just because that's what you're supposed to do, and it never helped often made it worse and agitated. So now with students, what I, what I always tell them is the only the one thing I can guarantee you about a spondylosis thesis yes. is that it does not compensate well. And anytime it has to compensate, yes. it's going to start to hurt. And so when you have a hot spondy, a hot L5 spondy or something like that, you want to look lower, look at the pelvis, make sure that that L5 is not being forced yes. to compensate. Well, that's you know, well. with an L, like I was saying to you earlier, off air that the the L5 and the atlas for that matter are the most over-adjusted segments in an acute presentation and in my opinion and you see it a lot especially you know you might a more advanced chiropractor might or a more experienced chiropractor might see the the challenges of other chiropractors come to their office and many many times that L5 has been adjusted numerous times and the person's getting worse or at best they're just not getting helped um, and the thing about that is, even if it is the L5 that's the primary problem, and you know you might even be looking at a D1 disc, you you very often have to start from below the disc, and even like even if the even if the L5 is genuinely posterior inferior, and at some point in time it's going to need a correction, it's it's often not the best place to start because. When the annular fibers start to experience creep and deformity and they start to um, lose their strength and support, the L5 body is going to settle into its weakest position. It's going to find its way down onto those weak structures, um, which if you look at Bob Dook and Toomey's work, it, it kind of explains our Gonstead mechanism of how the vertebra will sit posterior inferior on those posterior annular fibers and depending on which side, which laterality, you know, which side of the uh, lamina or the disc is most weak will tend to kind of direct the vertebra to the side of open wedge or side of closed wedge. Now, uh, when this is happening and you look at an image and the first thing you see is a spondylolisthesis, 
if you're to climb up on that sacrum and it's not the problem, like you're just going to put the patient in a world of world of hurt. And so what I would always say is, as like a kind of a bit like a golden rule, if you don't have an acute presentation, then don't get on the spondylo straight away. It's it's nearly every time not the sacrum. Um, it's going to be an ileum or, or something else. Uh, even when, see, the other thing too about the presentation here, like an acute presentation, you know, we all know that, say, an, an SI joint tends, if it does refer down the leg, it tends to stop at or around, you know, at or above the knee. You know, that, that's what we expect to see. If the sciatic is from a sacroiliac joint, it's going to stop at or above the knee usually. But, you know, in these in these really acute situations, especially if they haven't been managed well, you can get uh, an ileum subluxation refer all the way to the foot. And what I found in the past is the main culprit for that, when that does happen and it is an ileum listing, there's usually a very... Um, important IN component to the listing. Those, you know, a a good IN listing on a subluxation can be brutal to the the referral pattern down the leg. So when you have a a spondylolisthesis on film and even if you've got this kind of very strong, deep, sciatic pain that runs all the way when the patient will describe it as sciatic pain all the way down to the you know to the heel or the lateral part of the foot um you know we don't want to just start jumping on that sacrum straight away thinking that you know we've got we've got some low back pain and we've got some low limb referral and we've got this very clear indication of a spondylo on the film it's it's kind of like a trap I'd call it the biggest trap in chiropractic to go jumping on the sacrum there uh, because if you're looking at an IN component by itself, particularly an ASIN but even a PIIN, um, well, actually, first I should say, David, we all know anything can cause anything, but I'm just sort of going for the big ticket items here um, so that when people are sort of, if they're new to this concept, they can start to go, okay, right, uh, I'm going to, look this but there's definitely something that i've found that, um, and when i say oh, i i'm sure i've got it from somewhere too but like certainly my experience has taught me that if it's not super acute be very careful about getting on the sacrum of a spondylo and even if there's low limb referral all the way to the foot you want to still look at the sacroiliac joint first because it's most likely going to be there and you're often looking at a rotation in the sacrum or an in component to the ileum listing and you you're going to save yourself a lot of trouble and the patient a lot of pain if you start there first yeah i i was actually going to ask you before you said that i was thinking when you have the pain that goes to the foot it seems to me it's almost always an in or an ex component so it's the rotation of the sake of the pelvis that causes that problem it's not the up and down no and look the other thing too that i i think you know for some people will be an advanced concept but what i always try and remind myself is that nothing's separate nothing's ever separate so like if you take the l5 or any disc but let's just say the l5 disc for example um the inferior end plate of l4 
say, let's just say the inferior L plate end plate of L5 and the superior end plate of the sacral base, they're the actual um, superior and inferior structures of the L5 disc. There's no separation. The L5, like the disc, that isn't a piece of material that sits in between like a sandwich and, and does its thing. Um, so you, you literally have no separation of, of tissue there, really. I know if you put them under a microscope, they look a little different, but they transition rather than change. So you've got this, right? And the same thing happens at the nucleus. The nucleus is actually part of the disc. It's not like there's a little ball of jelly just floating around in there like a basketball. And, you know, I know we do the basketball between two pieces of wood thing and, you know, um, but, you know, that's obviously a conceptual thing. Like if you're straight out of secondary school and you need to develop a concept of kinesiology or biomechanics, it's a good way to think, oh, yeah, well, that'll that'll deform, but um, with, with different applications of motion. But in real life, the, the nucleus is, um, it's, it's part of that internal tissue. So, but the other thing too is when I say nothing separate, the whole vertebral motion segment is not separate to the rest of the body. So when we look at a model of subluxation, we say, all right, you know, say for example, PRS, we know that the vertebra's gone posterior and inferior and it's it's wedged open on the right-hand side and it's rotated to the right-hand side. So we can kind of conceptualise, oh, the nucleus must have sort of been pushed to the to the path of least resistance, so it's going to move to the open wedge side. So now if we imagine that situation, the nucleus is going to be, it's going to be forward and to the right somewhere sitting in there. And so because, you know, in any of these acute situations, the first questions we've got to ask ourselves is where is the nucleus? Like that's the first question I ask myself is where's the nucleus? Because I, I want to not just set this vertebra onto a dysfunctional, uh, sorry, onto a functional segment. Um, I want to try and create function in this dysfunctional disc. And the way that's going to happen is to set the vertebra onto the nucleus as best as possible because it's the shift in the nucleus which is maintaining the primary biomechanical, you know, aberrant function, and that's contributing to the change in the tone of the nervous system and whatever symptoms a patient's got. So, so yeah, we've got that model, but what I always try and remember is it's, it's not separate to the rest of the system, and most acute situations didn't happen by themselves. They're usually the end result of something. And like we said last time, you know, people might come in and say, oh, I put my back out cleaning my teeth or I put my back up picking a, my kid's toy off the floor. But you, you actually didn't. And, you know, even when someone says, you know, I did a, you know, 100, 200-pound deadlift and I popped my disc, I mean, that could have happened because deadlifts, risk versus benefit aren't a great exercise, but that's another story. Gives us some business for sure. Gives us some business. Um, <laughs> yeah, but sort of just to take that point, that person might have done, you know, bigger and heavier that many, many times over for the preceding three or four years. They might be well-trained in that exercise. They might have perfect technique. And I know we can talk about microtrauma because, you know, that's one sort of explanation for why there is creep and deformation and there's um, loss of support through the posterior annular fibers over time and eventually the L5 settles into that posture like that's one explanation or 
of the model. But what I think is more likely is that the rest of the system is letting that person down. There's there's some sort of long-term compensation through the iliums. There's, there's some sort of rotation through the sacrum. There's some sort of sacral segment issue. There's, there's an old injury that was never addressed. Like usually we get to these people and find out that, you know, as a teenager, they they fell off something and had a blunt injury from the concrete onto their, you know, their hip, which translated force through their ilium into their spine and, you know, caused all the adaptive changes. Um, and that was the body that the person five, six, seven, eight years, ten years later took into the gym and started to try and get some strength and conditioning. So the reason why I hope yeah, I hope I haven't missed the, lost the point yet, but to get back to what I was saying, like just to recap, we have a model of what happens when the L5 vertebra is sitting, we're calling it L5 for now, is sitting in a certain position and where the nucleus would be and what our job is in relation to getting that L5 segment back onto the disc. But I think there are other things that affect that disc and um, old primaries that sit in the sacrum, in the sacral segments, in the ileum, and even sometimes in superior segments, they're actually causing their own torsional or translational forces through that L5 primary, which is also having an effect on the nucleus itself. Because getting back to what I said before, trying to remind myself that nothing's ever separate, um, there's there's not just the position of the L5 vertebra acting on the nucleus, but there's the torsion and compressive forces from everything else that's adding to that. So when somebody's having a lot of trouble getting, uh, this gets back to the question of pumping and that sort of thing as well. When people are having a lot of trouble getting a segment into a position to correct, it's often because they're asking way too much of the person's body. You, you, you know, like we said last time, it's an adjustment's not something we do to the patient, it's something we do with them. And if, you know, the obviously with the D1 disc, if we use that example, particularly with the spondylo, which is what we started talking about, um, when it is, a, when the spondylo is the primary, that L5 disc can be, first of all, okay, there's too many concepts here, but hopefully everybody's caught them, right? They've just kind of tabulated them in and just put them on the shelf for a minute because I'm just going to introduce another one just quickly. One thing with the spondylolisthesis is by the time that the patient gets to us, they've the, the, the person's life has quite often chewed out a lot of that L5 disc before we see them. So it's not like... You know, we see them and they've got a perfectly healthy L5 disc one day and then it's just blown up with fluid um, the next day and that's when we see them. It's it's very unlikely or, un, you know, common that that's the case. Usually when we, we see a person like this for the first time, you know, they've had 30, 40 years of chewing out that L5 disc. The disc is quite small um, in relation to what it should have been. Um, it's deformed quite a lot in relation to how it was probably initially intended to look. Um, not just the sacrum, but other segments have settled into their compensatory positions over a long period of time. And then you get the injury. Then you get the L5. And let's just say we'll, go, we'll call it a spondylolisthesis now. We'll say it is the L5, sorry, the sacrum that's causing the problem. Like at that point, you've got 
degenerated dysfunctional disc, which is now traumatized and filling with fluid, and you don't have a lot of room to move. And the position of the disc is altered, but then you've got all the other contributory compensation issues that I was talking about from other segments that are driving force through that disc as well. So you either have to be like a, a masterful adjuster with just absolute precision to get that pinpoint accurate one or two millimeter correction on the sacrum underneath that disc and not affect anything else. And you'll get these amazing results. But if the person's not there in their level of practice yet, which is fine because nobody goes from finishing school to there, you know, You know, this is where you've got to really ask yourself, all right, well, what else is contributing to where the nucleus is in this situation? And I know I've kind of mixed up two examples here. So you can also take your mind back to that L5 example where it's just a straight PRS and a a D1 disc. Um, But you want to look really, really closely at the patient and the the motion, first of all, the static palpation and the observation will give you a lot of information about what state the person's in. But then when you try and do some gentle palpation, you know, you'll take them further into our antelgia a little bit, like that, whatever antelgic position they presented with, take them a little bit further into that position and then bring them back to where they started. And they'll let you move it at that point. They'll let you actually feel motion within that range. What a lot of chiropractors do is bring the patient back to them um, they have a concept of how the patient should be when they're motion palpating. And every single time, that posture is going to be the exact posture that irritates the nerve and irritates the most um, impacted part of the disc. So, yeah, you want to, the, the person's body is telling you where it's happy. So you want to take it more into where it's happy and palpate it in that range. In doing so, you'll get a lot of information about not just where the the um, D1 disc is, but you'll get a lot of information about what what other contributing factors there might be. And I would say to most chiropractors, unless they're very advanced, start with those spots. Like even if you know that L5 is primary, don't even attempt it. If you have an underlying PIX issue, sort that out first because, one, you're going to help the patient, and, two, you should always start at the level that's not going to make the patient worse if you're wrong. That's like a a good little rule to live by. Now, if you're like a lot of chiropractors and you're having trouble deciding which, what is that, you know, which is the one that's going to be safest or which one is, you know, least likely to make them worse, you would usually choose the inferior segment if you had, like, you know, as a general rule, um, you can be wrong adjusting below something, but you can be very wrong adjusting above something, right? Um, that's one thing. Like, for example, if you found an indication for an L5 segment and, a, and an S2 segment, um, you would start on the S2 every time if you were confused. And um, if you had a an S2 segment and a and say a right, say you had a, like a, a P-R and a PIEX on the same side, you would start with a PIEX 
every time, right? Because yep. if you're wrong by closing down the PIEX, you you might even reduce that rotation a little bit. Um, and even if you don't influence the, the rotation in the sacrum, you're still closing down the gap in the sacroiliac joint. So, you know, you what you'll do in those situations. And the other thing too, um, stop me if you just want to stop me, mate, because my brain is just going to keep going. But so the other thing there is if you if you're wrong, like if something's not primary, you can often still get a symptomatic benefit. Now, I'm not talking about we've kind of drifted off the spondylo a little bit because that this doesn't apply to that really. If you're wrong on a spondylo, you're going to be very wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's no kind. Of- there's yeah, no wrong, and, and, right. the, and the same goes with that D1L5 disc. Um, if you attempt to adjust that, or even if you attempt to just express fluid out of it, like you know, we, we talked about pumping the disc last time. Um, you know, it's in the curriculum of a lot of colleges and universities, and you know, I get why it's there. Um, there's some merit to it, but you know, if you do that wrong, or you do that on the wrong patient, or you do it when the person's body's not ready to accept it um, or you do it in the presence of other what I'm going to call torsional and compressive influences on the disc that are coming from other places, um, you've got a much higher chance of what I call mashing the disc and, and swelling it up than you have of actually pushing fluid out of it and reducing or decompressing the joint. Um, I think there's better ways to manage that, which we can talk about later if you like. Um, yeah, so yeah. yeah, alternative ways. That's a better word. Um, what was I going to say? I'm sorry, I just lost that for a moment. Oh yeah, so when you, if you are wrong, and you know, you you just say an L five. L five is a good example. I'm not talking about acute situation, but something where the person's really uncomfortable. Um, they've got a lot of lower back pain. They've even got some sort of translation of pain into the glute muscles or the hips, or it's sort of pushing down into the hamstrings a bit. Um, and you get on L5 and you, and you, get some, you get some correction on it and the patient comes back and says they feel better. Um, that can happen even if you just break in the fixation of a compensation. So, and the way the person can tell that they've done that as opposed to, you know, taking step to one in a step, you know, in a five-step process of getting that L5 onto the disc is the the response the benefit won't last very long they might say oh look i was good for maybe a day or so and then it all came back but then the chiropractor will think well that's good this time you'll be better for three days you know or maybe a week so they get on it again and in the room the person will say oh thanks that's better i can feel you've done it again you know but somewhere in the next three to four hours you probably get a phone call saying look you know am i supposed to be in agony Yeah. And, and the hard thing is that no matter how long you've done it and no matter how aware you are of that scenario, it is a constant battle yeah. to make sure that you don't do it. Yeah. So easy. So easy. To do so it. easy. And, and so it easy. is a little bit of trickery from the, the patient's body too, because it'll give you that little bit of positive feedback, but that's only because, yeah. you know, say for example, that, that patient needed 
a sacral adjustment, for example. Um, you shifting the L5, I think it did break some fixation and it did alter the position of the nucleus just a little bit. It did allow for a little bit of motion in the disc um, over the following 24 hours. It did allow for a bit of hibernation and like expressing some dirty toxic fluid out of the disc and it brought some nourishing fluid into the disc. And so it, it created a couple of physiological changes which um, decompressed the nerve a little bit or changed the tone of the nervous system in general. And so you got that temporary relief for the patient. But um, it sounds ironic, but even though all those things happened, you're only one step away from damaging the disc if you get back on it and do it again. So it's really important to read what's happening with the patient. Um, I know I'm not the first one to have ever said this, and I've probably got it from somewhere, but most likely you know, the Cox family or the good Australian guys that came here before me. Um, but it's a good, situ- good good thing in that situation just to give it a bit more time and see what it does. And if uh, experienced people will know this, but I'll just say this for the students and the young chiropractors. Um, it's a good thing to say to the, pa- the person, if we've got this right, you'll get some initial decompression. And then over the next day or two you might get some post-reactive swelling and or um, as the nerves wake up they can you know deliver their own symptoms to different parts of the body and it's good to give that a few days to happen now if we're on the right segment and we've set it in the right way once that swelling starts to drop away that you'll start to feel like you did straight after the correction when we've got that initial decompression now, if that doesn't happen, we, are, we either need to set it again or we need to move to a different spot. And I think as a little kind of safety mechanism, it, you know, as long as you can keep the patient comfortable um, with, with icing and motion and movement and so on, and you can kind of nurse them through those next few days, um, you're better to do nothing than to do the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah, I- we often yes. ignore the fact that the patient needs to heal and not heals at the same rate. So some patients need a little bit of healing yeah. time and some patients need a lot of healing time. And if you give them that healing, the process becomes so simple. And if you get on it too soon, you just end up fighting yourself. Like you can't, you feel like you can't go anywhere. You don't know what you're doing wrong. And it's just, exactly. It's just being too and that's exactly on. right, David. And, and also we've got to, we've got to develop really, really good palpation skills in our adjusting hand. And we've, Got to and and that if if you can remind me later to talk about stabilization in relation to that, there's a really important point I'd like to make. But um, yeah, we've got to get really good palpation in our in our adjusting hand, but we've also got to develop an excellent memory in our developing hand. Oh, sorry, in our adjusting hand, because and an excellent memory in our palpation. Um, episode or event because when the person comes back for reassessment and you're trying to decide whether you need to set that again or whether you need to get off onto something else the you need to touch the person in a way that you're doing a direct comparison of what you feel in that visit to what you felt on the previous visit and because if if you're not seeing changes in the way that the actual segment presents well, then you're most likely on the wrong level. And 
say you've got to the point where you've gone through the whole assessment, you've decided, well, I'm going to adjust this. I still believe this is what we need to correct again. And you go through your adjusting, your setup protocol, and you get to the point where you feel like, well, this, this should be feeling like it's in a better position to correct right now. Like this should be sort of settling into that neutral joint space. I should be able to, you know, I should be able to position the person so that I can open up that anterior joint space a little bit to create some space to set the vertebra onto the disc and so on. But you need to be able to reflect back to what your adjusting hand palpated on the first time you adjusted it and compare it to this time. Because if mm-hmm. if it's not changing or if it's different, but not even not different in a positive way, or if the rest of the person's body isn't allowed to isn't able to settle into an adjusting position no matter what you do in terms of like milking the disc or doing other supportive things which I'll talk about later um, that alone is evidence that you're on the wrong spot most times right that that's where you say listen I just want you to stand up for a moment let's have another look um, do your best at walking down the hall and back and if you, if they're impossible like they can't even walk just say let's just get you sitting up for a moment I just want to have another look at this on the bench. And, you know, you'll just do a complete reassessment sitting on the pelvic bench. And at that point, I'd be shocked if a person doesn't move to a sacral segment or, uh, you know, an ilium listing or or another sacral listing um, or decide just to leave that person alone. Like if if you get to a point where someone's in a too hard basket, you really don't want to be doing anything to that patient. and look, if there is something genuine higher up the spine, you know, you know, for fear, for fear of saying the wrong thing, I think a lot of times chiropractors, you know, once they're confused, they lay the person prone and click the thoracic so that they can justify the visit. And, um, you know, I, it's a terrible thing to do. And I, but having said that, if you, in your assessment, you know, you know that there is another primary subluxation in the person's spinal system or um, skeletal system. Um, there's nothing wrong with going to that, and and you know, you get them back in a few days' time or whatever you choose. But um, that that memory in the adjusting hand is extremely important. I think it's the thing that if if people can develop memory in the palpation and and sort of tactile sensory memory in the adjusting hand, it's going to just skyrocket their skills and their ability to help people. I think that's a great point. It's something I've thought about a lot, but I always forget to talk about it when I'm talking to people, that whole concept of you, if, you, if you can't palpate and know if you've made a change for better or for worse, then that's when you get lost and it's like trying to drive without a map and not knowing exactly. where your headlights are off and you don't know where you're going. If you at least guide you, you don't get so lost. At least then you know, okay, they're getting better. I'm going in the right direction or they're getting worse. Maybe I need to just let them go home yeah. and we'll try it again tomorrow. But either way, you know what to do is if you can sense that difference or or to honestly be able to do it and know, honestly, in your own mind, that's I mean, right. no change. And sometimes no change just means that's okay. Like you could go for another shot, but you need, you need to pick another bone. Like choose yeah, again, <laughs> pick absolutely. something else. Cause whatever that was. Made uh, exactly. David, um, we should, you should always see a change no matter what it, it the person's not necessarily a hundred percent fixed. 
after you've adjusted them, but they should notice a change of some kind. And, you know, one of my favorite things for people to say is, you know, usually I'll get them if they can to walk a few steps and after I've corrected them, you know, give them time first because usually, you know, people have these, you know, these big problems, people have huge shifts and you can't just adjust someone and then just whip them, you know, get them off the table. Um, quite often when you make these profound changes to somebody's nervous system, they need time to even get up. Uh, so that's worth, and, um, you know, even in terms of your set and hold, like, you know, set and hold's a great concept, but I think it you need to set and hold the entire body, not just the contact point, you know. You almost like to, you almost need to, like, compress the people down and, and, and hold them in that place the way you would almost cuddle a toddler and then just kind of slowly take your weight off them. Um, I think that helps everything about the, the, the setting, but also the patient's nervous system tones. It, it's going to want to, if you do the right thing, to some extent, the person's nervous system will return to its normal tone. And, but the effect of that can be a bit jarring to a person. So yeah, you want to kind of nurture them out of the correction and then give them time. But then once they're able to, once they're up, because they'll usually be quite, if you're on the right level um, and you've reduced a lot of nerve irritation, the person will often be quite, and I know I'm not telling you anything, I'm just sort of saying this for the people who haven't seen it, but the, um, you know, they'll be quite dizzy. They might be a bit light in the head. They might be very flushed in the face and they need a bit of time to collect themselves. But once they've done that and they have a little bit of a walk to the best of their ability, um one of the first things that I try not to put the words in their head, but what I'm, I'm waiting for them to say is, oh, that feels a bit lighter or I feel lighter. Um, that word lighter really gives me an indication that, yeah, we're on the right track here. Yeah. Yeah. And um, oh, what was I just thinking of? Yeah. Uh, sometimes when when you make an adjustment like that, it seems to me the more pressure they have on it that you have to take off quickly. When you relieve a lot of pressure really quick, that's when you're more likely to have them kind of be overwhelmed for a second. Um, they might get a more profound response. They might even feel a little bit sick. They could have something weird happen, but I've always equated it to when there's a lot of pressure and I know I got to take that pressure off quick, that's when I start suspecting something unusual might happen after this is fixed just because I can't take it yeah. off slowly. It's got to come yeah. off. Yeah, and it's quick. and it's good and it's good just to sort of almost let them sit in their silence and you know don't we, we have a tempt we have a tendency to start doing and saying a lot. Um, you just kind of let them sit in their peace and uh, when they they'll start to verbalize how they feel. And my response is usually yes, the the right correction at the right time is very profound. And. Yeah, I agree with that 100% because in that moment, their nervous system is overwhelmed. The, what they don't Last need is a need. whole bunch of language coming at them. So you just let them sit there quietly and they'll let you know when they yeah. kind of yeah, exactly. even itself out. Um, yeah, I mean, I wish I could swear, but um, you, you, know, it, you know what the patients are like. Sometimes they'll just like sit in silence for you know a minute or two, which seems like an eternity. 
And then the first words out of their mouth, and usually not something their mum will be proud of. They... They're like, what did you do to me? Are you sure it was good? You're like, it was good, see? And they start getting that sense of humor back. Yeah. Maybe it's the first well, time they smiled that you've seen them. They give you I'm actually really glad you said that better. because um, that's something that I, I think is worth mentioning. No matter how acute, no matter how in agony a person is, um, when the time's right, I'll try, and it's usually when I'm setting them up, and I'll try and get them just to sort of giggle a little bit once or twice. And they won't obviously laugh because laughing hurts. Uh, yeah. But they'll kind of get that sort of, you know, sort of like they want to laugh but they're not letting themselves. But even that, like it's it's a it's a physiological impossibility as far as I'm concerned to laugh and not be relaxed at the same time. Um, like there's this um, sense of letting go that occurs when a person has the emotion of laughing. So they obviously, they're not going to sort of start laughing loud because it will hurt them. But even just the intention or the emotion of wanting to smile is actually extremely relaxing. And when you're trying to get somebody set up for a correction, like I said, if it was just the fact that a vertebra has moved PRS and we know where the nucleus is and we know where the open wedge is and we know where the closed wedge is um, and we're just going to set that L5 to S1, S1 um, it wouldn't be so difficult. But many, many, many times there's underlying torsional and compressive forces that are acting through the disc as well as the actual listing that we need to be aware of. And because of that, I think that explains why quite often the patient is most comfortable in a position opposite to what you thought they'd be comfortable in. Like when you look at when you look at the listing and you look at the nerve irritation, you look at the person's presenting symptoms when they're walking, sitting, you'd expect them to be more comfortable on one side or the other, or you'd expect it. Do you know what I mean, David? Um, and, you know, when you say to them, I want you to lie on the side that's most comfortable for you, they'll quite often choose the opposite to what you thought and they'll find them, you'll find them in some bizarre configuration that you would never have thought they could even get in with their presenting problem. But I think what we're looking at there is we don't just have the primary subluxation and the relative planes of aberrant motion that we're dealing with. What we've got there is those things we talked about earlier where you've got, you've got, various forces acting through the disc that are coming from uh, locations distant to the disc. So sacral segment issues. Uh, and you know, another thing we can talk about later in my practice, we've actually completely, I wouldn't say changed, but we've added to, and I, I don't know if this is the right place to say it, so I probably should sort of document it and publish it first. I don't know, but um, it seems right to mention it. We, we've added a lot to the listing system of all the sacral segments right down to S5 and including rotational sacral listings like P-R. We tend not to go, we, we sort of added to that as well. It's rare that you see an actual standard P-R, for example, uh, that involves the entire sacral, um, the whole sacrum. Um, and even the ilium listings, particularly when there's an iron or an EX component in terms of where the um, 
most edematists tender point is and where the contact point is and where you're sort of setting yourself up for your line of drive on these things, we'll actually put a like a, a sub note of like say for example, you know, it's an IN, our listing will look more like IN in brackets um, for inferior. So what we're saying is where the fixation really appears to be at its highest is in line with, sorry, um, like three inferior, um, is down at the third sacral segment right at the inferior margin where it articulates with the ilium. So because when you're dealing with these subluxations, um, you'll get so much more benefit, not just to the level of the subluxation, but also the effect on the system. I always talk, well, I'm always trying to think of what's the systemic effect of what I'm going to do. Like, obviously, when you take an iron ileum um, away from the sacrum, you know you've got, a, you've got a concept of what's happening at the joint, um, especially if you use like a sprain-strain model. There's going to be a fixation component to the sprain-strain. and But at that point, I think it's a really good thing to say, well, all right, if there's a fixation component, where is it? Let's, let's be more in line with where the fixation is. Let's, let's direct our force directly to where the fixation is and in the plane line of what's going to um, reduce that fixation the most. And so that's why um, that's why we sort of we're more specific with those listings, um, but also because we're thinking, all right, we know in general terms, for example, what does an ASIN do? You know, it straightens out the lumbar spine and it decreases the the sacral angle. Well, if that's what it's doing um, at this point, I want to have as big an impact on those global changes as I can. So that's another reason why we try and make it more specific. Um, another example would be the sacral segments. Like we, in our practice, divide up, you know, over in collaboration with associates over time, we've developed a system where we divide the sacrum into segments. So it won't. it's not enough for us to just say, for example, you know, like third sacral segment in rotation or something. We've, we've kind of split up each side of the sacrum, you know, sorry, each sacral segment, each side of the tubercle, we split that into four and then we split that horizontally into three. So um, if there's a particular point that we take a contact on, especially in our practice because we have this joint management system where um, all of my new patients I share with my associates and we co-manage and otherwise I couldn't take new patients. It just wouldn't be enough room. So... I've had to try and find a way to standardise it so that if another practitioner wants to know where I contacted, they know exactly where it was. So, for example, I might adjust, say, S4, and I might adjust, you know, 4SAC, it'll look like 4SAC dash, uh, you know, 4M, which is the middle line, or 4 inferior, which is down the, the inferior aspect of the fourth segment out. So it just takes us to the most precise point and, you know, when you start, I mean, we've been so involved in sacral segments now for probably 15 years or so, especially definitely 10 years, um, oh, no, 15. And, you know, when you start looking at them closer and closer and you start to really critique your own line of drive and where you're setting these things to, because sometimes you'll set them to the segment above, sometimes you'll set them to the ilium. So it just depends yeah, you're nodding your head so you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
Yeah. So I've always taken note of things like that. Like if you're doing a sacrum, is it more like say you're doing a PR sacrum? Was well, it more fixated at the S2 portion where that hooks in? Yeah. Is it more the S3? And where is the thing? But I didn't have anything to communicate yeah. to. So I just logged it away in my head. And if anybody read know anything so i was immediately i was thinking yeah you have to share them you have to be able to communicate accurately in a way that me and probably a lot of other people never did have to act. so i just memorize when I you practice my patience, right. but, but i know because you're, you're sometimes the angle's there yeah so when you're practicing by yourself it's not as important and i think that's one of the um the biggest issues with chiropractors is it is possible to practice in your own bubble and um you know, when mm-hmm. when there's no one there to tell you that you're wrong, you're just right all the time, aren't you? <laughs> so, so there's that one problem. But, yeah, when you've got a community, but it's also eventually, you know, when things are, the other reason why it's really important to find a way to log these things is when you're managing a, a true subluxation, like I've got to the point now where I don't even think in terms of, individual primary subluxations as much as the entire body is subluxated, right? So um, how do I explain that better? For example, the sacrum is the best example by far. You You might take someone from extremely acute to, you know, back to high level sport, for example, but to that journey, if you, if you logged it in the old system, you would say, what was the problem? Oh, his problem was a rotated sacrum. They're like, oh, cool, no problem, that's great. But in reality, how did you actually fix that person? Well, over a period of, you know, three or four weeks, I took six or seven different very, very precise sacral contacts. And had I not done it in that order, I don't believe I would have got them that well. And I certainly wouldn't have got the stay put value on that patient and especially when it's when it's linked to other things, like say for example an L5 primary, um, there's no way, in my opinion, you're going to get the stay put value on the L5 had you not set the sacral segments up in the right order in the right way, because that's that's a really good example of what I was saying before about how you don't just have you don't just have the aberrant joint motion of the primary like the L5 in this situation and the nucleus settled into the open space. You've also got the torsional forces of the sacral segments and the compensationary changes in the iliums that are going to put a lot of stress through that disc. And that's why I said earlier, I try and remind myself that nothing's separate. You know, the end plates are the end plates of the disc and the nucleus is the internal fibres of the tissue just with a, you know, just at a, a like a gelatinous change at some point, but essentially it's not separate to the rest of the disc and none of that's separate to the rest of the system. So in that L5 primary where it's PRS, you don't just have the forces of the L5 misalignment acting on the nucleus. You've got the forces, the, the torsional rotational forces coming up from the sacrum acting on that nucleus as well. And um, so that's why sometimes... Yeah you'll purposely you know once you've seen a lot of these you'll you'll give that l5 an initial correction to get the person some massive decompression and some relief and then you'll go off and mop up what you know 
probably caused it and is probably going to make it impossible for you to ever get the nucleus in the right spot if you don't change those things. So you'll go and correct them and then you'll come back and adjust the L5 again. And, you know, if somebody asked you, oh, how did you fix the person? Uh, It looks like an L5. Did you adjust it? Yes, I did. How many times? Twice. And they're like, well, that's bullshit. There's no way you can fix that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They don't know about the other stuff. But the other stuff brings you back to what you're saying about palpation because how you know the line of drive on each one of those six different adjustments of the sacrum, the way that you know that is from your palpation. Yeah, where it needs to go. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, the edema is going to change. It's going to change between visits. If, if you know what you're looking for and you, if you practice looking for it and palpating for it. And I think I said last time that, you know, the edema and static palpation, if you couldn't have anything else to use, I'll just choose those two because you, um, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, motion and the scope and everything else helps. Um, you know, x-rays, I think, you know, I cringe like every time I hear anybody talking about taking the right to x-ray off chiropractors, I just, you know, I hope that day never comes because the amount of information you can get off a film, I don't even think you can quantify it. Like it's just, and the, the longer you're in practice, the more you see various patterns and, um, and, and by the way, you, you are going to find the, the subluxation on the patient um, but, you know, like L5 is a really good example. You know, through your assessment, your palpation, your experience, you've determined this L5 disc is in trouble. I know that this L5 disc needs help. This is the primary subluxation. But the films are going to help you enormously um, determine what order you're going to correct things in or even if you're just going to adjust the disc from above or below. Like... Um, the effect of adjusting an L5 vertebra when you're supposed to be on the sacrum is disastrous. And when they're really bad, you know, the puddle of edema is big as the bottom of a soup can and it covers from, you know, L3 or 4 down to the fourth sacral segment. Like you can't say, oh, there's the spot. It's like, well, it's like a swimming pool. And you know, and then you sort of start to delve in. Yeah. And obviously, you know, I know with the experienced people, if they're listening, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I'll back myself. I reckon I could probably decide. Well, I reckon you probably could too. Um, there, there would be some people listening to this that given 10 cases exactly like this, they'd probably be right eight or nine times. Um, but I still say give me an X-ray any day of the week. I'd never back myself without the film. I mean, I would if I had to because sometimes you have to. But, you know, we see pregnant patients that we can't X-ray and, you know, things like that. But um, But that's true too, definitely. That makes your adjustment better. Yeah, 100%, David. That's that's 100% true. But, um, but yeah, getting back to what you said about palpation of the sacral segments, I've put a lot of thought over the years into where do these segments go? Like, um, you know, and for people starting out, even if you find rotation in a segment, I say start on the tubercle because, you know, you're still, you're actually going to help the person. Um, But if if you're going to start on the tubercle, you need to really, you really need to 
still palpate very carefully because there's going to be a side of the tubercle that's more tender and more dematous, even if it's just by a, a, the tiniest little amount. And if you can make sure that you can you, you, you contact with a slight bias towards that side of the tubercle, you're going to, you're going to be much closer to the right track. Um, once you've had practice with this and you, you, you've actually started to see the, the subtle changes that exist between sacral segments, um, you'll be a lot more specific. And that's why we have things like, you know, for example, you know, four sac dash one, two, three, four, and then superior, medial and inferior, depending on which part of the segment we're on. Um, but the other thing is, you know, what's the segment done? Like, has it moved in relation to the segment above it, similar to the way a base, base posterior would move in relation to uh, L5? Um, or is it moved in rotation more like a P-R would in relation to the ilium? And that will determine what your line of drive is, whether you set it to the segment above or whether you set it to the ilium. Um, and sometimes, just to complicate matters more, you know that these things are having a direct impact on the L5 disc, and particularly if the disc is parallel, you'll often set, you know, S3 or S4, but you'll do it in a way that's mindful enough that you're actually taking S4 to up to S3, but you're taking the entire sacrum up to the L5 disc and then through the plane line of the disc. So then the, the, the adjustments start to become extremely complicated. Um, and at that point, you create listings like, you yes. know, BP4 or BP3. And, you know, um, this, this is another podcast, I think, we're talking about this one. But Well, you know, one thing we haven't talked about, but I think we probably should since we're talking about acute, yes. yeah. is um, acute cervical problems. Yeah. It probably could be a whole other podcast all by itself. But earlier. I wanted to say something yeah, about I stabilization. I, remember. I don't know if you remember what it was. Um, first, but, you, uh, your, your brain, I'm just going to write down stabilization so I don't forget. And But you just sent my brain going down another path. I'll just quickly mention this one. Um, Bill Dressler and Alex Cox came out once and they mentioned uh, when it comes to the thoracic spine that sometimes, you know, normally when you see a subluxation on the film, the disc below the subluxation will be um, closed at the back and be open, sorry, yeah, and open at the back and the disc above. Um, sometimes they, they introduced a topic once where sometimes in the thoracic spine, uh, especially in, in an acute thoracic spine, the, um, the disc below the subluxation might be open at the back. All right. Now, I've heard some people, I think some people have tried to describe the same thing in different ways. Um, I heard somebody once talk about, you know, anteriority in the thoracics and setting a thoracic, you know, I've heard people describe it as maybe, you know, sometimes you set the thoracic a bit like you would a BP. Um, but I think that in that situation, that's what you're seeing. I think that when you've got, if you look at the anterior curves, like the cervical spine and the lumbar spine, um, you're going to see that posterior inferiority with the closed wedge at the back of the below the subluxation and the open disc above or parallel disc above um, you see that in the lumbar spine and the cervical spine in the thoracic spine when it's acute you'll quite often see these parallel discs or these really fat discs below the subluxation 
Um, and so <clears throat> um, I just wanted to quickly mention that for people to start looking out for it um, because when you mentioned acute cervicals, the cervical spine will compensate in a horrendous way to these things sometimes, particularly if they're at two, T2, 3, 4. Um, and what looks like a really, really acute cervical spine is actually many times a thoracic problem, particularly upper thoracic. Yeah. I tell my classes that all the time and they think I'm crazy. I'm like, I'm yeah. sick. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very important and <laughs> because... One of the one of the downsides of being a Gonstead practitioner is that we address our corrections to the disc. Um, that's what makes us incredibly uh, effective, <clears throat> and that's what makes us, uh, in my opinion, able to deal with a lot of um, sort of like you know sort of a huge range in levels of infirmity for of, of people. You know, we can take these very, very, very unwell people that are systemically sick, you know, like they're kind of sick to the bone um, and we can do well with them you know, and we can turn them around quite quickly. And I think one of the reasons is because we've been taught by the people that have come before us to direct our attention in assessment to the disc and our correction to the disc. But it's also our Achilles heel because if you're on the wrong one, man, you're going to really cause some trouble potentially. Um, and when people start to get good at moving things, um, that's great when you're moving the right thing. But if you're, you know, if if the C5 or 6 looks a little bit tipped back um, or even a lot tipped back, um and it's in compensation to a T3 problem and the person's presented super acute and you manage to get a really good movement on that C6, you haven't done them any favours whatsoever. So, um, yeah, I, I just, I'm not, again, not talking to the advanced people here. I guess I'm more talking to the students and people just starting out. But, yeah, get obviously get really, really good at, at palpating and, and finding what the aberrant planes of motion are and 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 getting your skill base around being able to set these vertebrae onto the disc, but then put, I, w- I was going to say equal, but I'd say even more attention into finding the subluxation because, you know, once you've got those weapons, they can be really dangerous in the wrong hands. Yeah, yeah. That's true. A, a good adjuster with no ability uh, yeah, to find stabilization absolutely. is a dangerous thing. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned stabilization. <clears throat> Pardon me. So, yeah, you, stabilization is something that, you know, when I talk to my associates and anybody else who will listen, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I always say um, you're not just stabilizing at the level of the stable segment. So, for example, if you're going to set atlas you're not in an acute situation or not but definitely an acute situation you're not just stabilizing c2 and if you're going to set c6 onto c7 you're not just stabilizing c7 um you every time you you stabilize you stabilize i I teach my associates associates to to stabilize the entire system and i know that sounds a bit bizarre initially but um you know, so much so that 
my own personal adjusting technique could be almost unrecognizable for what I what it looked like when I started out or in the first five or ten years. Um, I saw a video played back of me adjusting a patient the other day, and you know I had these kind of all like these gnarly fingers and everything, and I'm like, wow, I didn't know I looked like that, you know, because just over the years to to set up for say a any any cervical adjustment, I've got some of my finger pads on the occiput and I've got some of my finger pads on the segments above the thing that I'm setting and the other hand is coming around and it's setting the segment below what I'm setting but it's also wrapped around and catching from the front but on top of that I'm, I'm bringing the whole person back to me and I'm I'm kind of almost sitting them in the chair so that you know they get that sensation of their entire body's being put in the right place and at that point, when the when the thrust comes, only that segment moves in relation to the segment below, and nothing else. And so, stabilization is it's a it's a massive conversation I've found. And over the years, I think, or well, actually, rather than saying over the years, just say of all the people that you speak to in Gonset Chiropractic, I think you would say that you know that's the biggest challenge, and that's the thing that people need to. Uh, dedicate a lot of work on or a lot of work too is because the other thing about stabilization that's really important here is especially in the acute patient is you're going to get like let's just use an example let's use an example like say say c1 right just for example um you're going to get so much um neuritis and so much muscle guarding and so much splinting that when you first approach the patient it could be anything from occiput down to sacrum like you really don't know what you're looking at the person's just locked up in one position and they're not moving from it so you know it literally could be caused by anything and once you you know even if you cancel out the bottom half of the spine definitely you could be looking at anything from the thoracics all the way to the occiput for this particular patient. Now, when you go to assess the person, there's going to be this massive guarding to the point where, you know, when you start palpating, you'll find, oh, no, okay, so at least the, at least I know the bottom half of the thoracic vertebra are moving and, you know, there's no um, signs of frank nerve pressure and these they don't seem to be part of this acute presentation. So you'll work your way up. Now, rather than go through an entire case on a podcast, let's just skip all the way to sort of C4, right? So now we've got to a point where from occiput to C4 is just completely blocked. And any attempt to make any motion on any of those segments sends the person into writhing pain. And so you, you somehow, somewhere you've got to make a decision which, which one of these needs to be corrected. Now, one of the so this is where stabilization can also be diagnostic all right so remember what i said before about you know if somebody's in an antalgic position you if you're going to do anything you want to like help them into more of an antalgic posture first so let's just say their head was kind of laterally flexed to one side and looking up to the sky on the opposite way and you know they hold their they're holding their head on their shoulders by their hair, you know. You would have seen that. And they can't even let go of their hair because they feel like, you know, one millimetre of motion is just going to send this lancinating pain everywhere. And 
So with a person like that, what I'll do is I'll I'll kind of bring my hand in and I'll I'll cut my hand to support. Imagine if they were to let go of their hair, which way would their head fall? That side is where I would put my hand. And I'd 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 run it down and I'd kind of position my finger pads along the spinal laminar junction of each segment to get a really specific little bed for each segment to lie on. And then I'd use the rest of the palm of my hand and thena and hypothena and my thumb to kind of, and, and, you know, people laugh at me in the practice, but I say that, you know, I don't care how big and hairy and smelly the person is, you've got to touch them like you love them. And and it really is, it, it really is the go-to thing. Like you, if it's, it's a key to success. Like you literally have to, in that moment, you really act, actually have to love your patient because like I said last time, one thing is you're getting on the same frequency and vibration as your patient. And two, um, I don't care who they pretend to be in their normal life. Like they could be a UFC fighter or like a, you know, a Marine or with the commandos or like, like whatever. Um, at that moment, they're about a four-year-old baby and that's how you got to hold them, you know? And so I cupped the, the spinal laminar like junctions of each segment and I'll slowly, slowly sort of bring the person into a place where they don't have to do anything and that's the key. Like whether you're talking about an acute lumbar, acute thoracic, acute whatever, you've got to bring the person into a position where they don't have to do anything. That That's step number one and that takes a lot of practice and trial and error but a really good, I think, way if people haven't done it before to, and they want to sort of try it after this podcast, I think a really good way would be look at the person, look at their posture, look at how they're holding themselves, and then imagine if you had to make some sort of plasticine or Play-Doh support that just kind of fitted in there that they could lean on. That's what you need to be. So I'll sort of slide my hand in. And, my, and I'll kind of cup them in a way and I'll bring my other hand over and I'll bring them to me if they're in the chair, for example, which they're 99.9% of the time will be. Sometimes with a really acute, I had one just last week, it was a child, um, I took a video of it too, you'd be really interested to see, I might share it with you. Um, it took nearly, I forget, the whole video went for almost 15 minutes and I think the adjustment occurred at minute 14 or or it went for 14 minutes and the adjustment occurred at minute 13. So that's how long it can take just to get the thing in the right position. Um, and that is all using this kind of technique that I'm talking about now. So basically what you want to do is you want to find out which segments have extension in them. And that can seem like a funny like a bad joke in this situation because they don't have any motion whatsoever like that, you know, that whole block of vertebrae just, is doing, it's, it's just all seized up. But you can actually work your finger pads in between those spinal laminar junctions of each vertebra and just allowing the weight of gravity to sort of fold over your fingers and it's like less than a millimetre each time. Now, what I'll do is I'll watch their breath and quite often you'll hear their breath. In, in these acute presentations. So the person will be like, <gasps> like that. So every time you hear the noise, that allows you to just, just 
less than a millimeter every time you just you just kind of want to open up the joint space a little right and each time they breathe out they'll settle into a slightly different position but it, it literally could take 10 minutes and this is where you've got to have a lot of endurance uh, a lot of patience um, and a really calm manner but it can literally take 10 minutes just to get a, in, into a position where you can get in this example the c4 three and two to palpate just a little bit of extension but you're still palpating in that antalgic posture now the fact that you've this is a this is a key thing for people to know who haven't done many of these and there'll be people that have done heaps so they already know it but um one of the key things about this is if you're able to institute motion into a fixated segment in an acute patient, it's not the primary because if you can get tissues to relax and melt under your hand to a point where you can actually generate significant motion, it, it's not going to be the primary. It's going to be compensation. So um, as we get our L4 to start to move and we get our L3 to start to move and then get our – you're starting to cancel these segments out as – the cause of this thing. Um, now, it's not to say that you, with a primary subluxation you can't get any movement but because you can. But if there's a complete blocked fixated um, palpatory finding due to subluxation, um, you, you the body won't let go of that fixation without the correction. So do, do you know what I mean by that, David? Am I explaining that right? Yeah, so so um, as those tissues, as you, if you can get tissues to melt under your finger, I mean, even if it takes a long, long time, like 10 minutes, um, if you can get tissues to melt under your finger, that's doing two things. One, it's bringing the person into a position where they can be corrected, but it's also diagnostic in that it's telling you these aren't the primaries, right? Now, by this stage, there'll be a point where you've decided this is definitely the atlas in this scenario. Like in, in another example, we could end up somewhere else. But in this situation, we've decided it's a ASLP, for example. Um, now, by, by holding that posture, what you want to eventually do is you want to eventually keep the stabilisation that you've achieved and keep the like instituting the – like this is what I was saying about the, an alternative to pumping the disc before. You, you want to you institute normal motion in the compensatory segments um, and use the patient's breath to do it, right? And by instituting normal motion in the compensatory segments, you'll actually take pressure off the primary, right? And that will help you get the primary into a neutral position where you can correct it. And – Unfortunately, at this point, we ran into a glitch with the audio. I apologize for that, but I do have some good news. I'm working on building a YouTube channel where I can share the video from some of these same interviews. So I'll plan to share this video on there in its entirety. It's my intention to have some material that's exclusive to the podcast and some material that's exclusive to YouTube. So be sure to check out both options in the future. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Ross Burrow for joining me today. I hope that you were able to understand some of these more advanced concepts and that you were able to apply it to your own technique to know where you need to improve and how you're going to do it. Even for myself, I realize there are things I really need to focus on or else they simply won't happen.
and they really need to. Speaking of technique, if you're a student or a doctor and you need to work on your technique, I highly recommend that you consider going to the Gonstead Extravaganza at the Gonstead Clinic in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin, July 24th and 25th. Many of the guests that you've heard on this podcast will be in attendance. For more information or to register, you can go to gonsteadmethodology.com. Well, I know we went a little longer than usual this time. We actually talked for four hours and you got the condensed version, but I hope you learned something that you can begin applying immediately. As always, I hope you've had the very best week possible and I'll see you again next time.